Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone, this is Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation, and our guests today are Dr. Naomi Baum and Michael Dixon. Um, now for people that don't know who you are, can you just say a little bit about what you do, where you're from, maybe a bit about your history. Um, why don't we start with, with Naomi and then we'll, we'll go to Michael. Hey, my name is Naomi Baum. I live in Israel, uh, a little bit south of Jerusalem in a town called Efrat. And uh, I've been living, I was born in the US as you can tell from my accent and grew up there. I've been living in Israel for over 30 years. Um, I am a psychologist, uh, both by training and uh, experience. <laughs> I've been a psychologist for many years. For the last 20 years, um, I have delved into the field of trauma and resilience building and have created programs to help communities uh, in Israel and all over the world recover from trauma. So uh, the emphasis, I would say, on my work is bringing mental health to communities. And uh, the emphasis is also on resilience um which really comes to play in the book which we're going to talk about in a few moments mm. what else can i tell you about myself i'm married i have seven kids 21 grandkids um i like to cycle i like to scuba dive i like to swim i love to travel love to travel um uh, i'm thinking about the things that i'm not doing these days <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to reminisce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you sound, uh, and that's about it. Well, if you love it, you sound like you have a sense of adventure. So I think uh, we'd get along well. Yeah. <laughs> and then Michael? Yeah, you're definitely kindred spirits, Daphne. Um, <laughs> I'm Michael Dixon. Uh, and uh, it's been my privilege to know uh, both Andrew and Daphne, both of you, for a while. Um, I was born and bred in the UK. I, uh, where I was married with two little kids and we packed up our bags and moved to Israel, where I've lived for coming up to 15 years. Uh, I'm the executive director of Stand With Us Israel. Stand With Us is an educational nonprofit, uh, a movement of people who want to support Israel around the world and want to fight anti-Semitism. Uh, we believe in teaching people so that they can teach others. Uh, and our message, I think, goes along very nicely with that of generation to generation, because for us, it's all about empowering and educating the next generation so that they can uh, take the message on. And so we were founded in uh, Los Angeles in 2001, uh, because at that time, there were terrible terrorist attacks happening all across Israel, bus bombings and cafe bombings. And what was being reported in the press wasn't really what was happening on the ground. And uh, so a group of people got together and decided to do something. And the something they created now, uh, almost 20 years on, has become a global movement. Uh, we have a visitor center in the heart of Jerusalem where we welcome tens of thousands of people every year. Uh, we put out educational material in many different languages. We have huge social media reach in 18 different languages working around the clock. Uh, we provide pro bono legal support to people who are facing uh, discriminatory boycotts due to their 
uh, support of Israel. And we try and be a bridge between peoples of all different backgrounds to learn more so that they can teach more about Israel, what Israel really represents, not just to Jews, but to people all around the world. Yeah, and I, I would just say anybody who's listening, do look up Stan with us. I mean, I carry around in my um, bag little little booklets and things like that that you've got that are just so, so helpful. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't dream of going to Jerusalem without popping in and seeing our friends that stand with us. But it's We a love fun... to see you. We love to see you. And, and the materials you're mentioning, people can download them from standwithus.com or get them shipped to them. Uh, and like you say, we try and produce well-researched, kind of straight to the brain, clear mm. materials that people can utilize on the day-to-day and keep with them even and give to people and share the knowledge. So that's really important for us. I was about to say, can you share where people can find your resources? And you've done that. And we'll put the, the description, uh, we'll put the links in the description as well so people can find them. Uh, Naomi, can you just share where people can find what you're doing as well, any of your resources? Sure. You want me to share it in the chat? Mm-hmm. Um, no, you can just, yeah, just share it now and then I'll, I'll add the information in the... Uh... Ah, okay, so I have a website. It's naomibaum.com. Pretty simple. Which uh, is Fantastic. my website. So let's um, get to the book. Is Resilience. Have I said it right? Said it correctly. Yes, you said it beautifully. Right. Is Resilience. Is Resilience. So let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to write the book? So uh, I mentioned I've lived in Israel for almost 15 years. To live in Israel for any given period of time, you see a lot of stuff. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've lived through wars and we've lived through terror attacks and we've lived through what they call stabbing intifadas. And we've lived through so many different, uh, I would say, traumatic experiences. And it dawned on me that there is something very special about the Israeli people who live with these challenges on the day-to-day and yet continue to push forward and succeed and grow and uh, continue on with their families. And so I think there is something that the world can learn from who Israelis are. And so I wanted to put that to the test, that theory. And uh, we begin the book with some personal reflections. And I remember uh, we were sitting around the breakfast table and it was Israeli Remembrance Day for fallen soldiers and victims of terrorism. And and as you know, that day is immediately precedes uh, Independence Day. You go from one into the other, from the sadness into the joy. And so it was Remembrance Day, and at the breakfast table, my older daughter said to my younger daughter, now there's going to be a siren. And uh, when you hear that siren, I don't want you to worry. It's not the one where you run and hide. It's the one where we stand to attention. And I just thought, wow. You know, I grew up in London. Um, These were not the things that I needed to think about. Um, We were not ever in the line of fire from rockets coming in from, you know, a a territory ruled by people who want to destroy us. Um, These are very real challenges that Israelis face. So I, over the years began to understand there is something distinctly resilient about the Israeli people. And I wanted to write about it. And I went to interview a leading psychologist in the field of resilience, who was then based at the Jerusalem uh, uh, Center for Psychotrauma. And she is sitting with us right now because she was so elucidating in what she had to say. 
that, and she's somebody who has taken Israeli uh, theories of how to deal with resilience and take them to people around the world after uh, they've faced uh, uh, humanitarian tragedies. And so I asked Naomi to join me on this journey. And we went together, north, south, east, west, all across the country, meeting people from all different backgrounds. Uh, some of them are very well known, some of them not, but all of them incredible stories. They've all faced down adversity in some way and pushed forward as a result. And so what we hope is that the book is an inspirational story of different people's ability to cope. Uh, and, uh, you know, they say bounce back, but it's been suggested that bounce forward is a better term. And they bounce forward from tragedy and from challenge. And that's something that we can all learn from. Yeah, Naomi, when I heard you say um, it's about bouncing forward, and I've right. written, and I actually had that about your children to bring up if you hadn't, Michael. So I'm glad you said it. But when I heard you say about about bouncing forward, I thought that gives a whole new perspective on trauma, because usually, from my perspective, people always think about trauma, about having to go back and to do with it. It's, it's about restoring what you had. It, it's a very um, the trauma becomes almost a trauma in itself. But when you said about bouncing forward, I thought that actually gives the trauma some power. You can't bounce on a trampoline if you haven't got a trampoline. So do you like to talk more about just that statement of bouncing forward? Sure. So um, when we we talk about trauma, we talk about how it really kind of rips life asunder. There's life before trauma and there's after trauma. And there's this huge chasm, this trauma that people very often have trouble bridging. They have trouble finding themselves again, remembering that they are actually the same person from before the trauma to after the trauma. And when you talk about trauma treatment, one of the goals is to help people reweave the fabric of their lives so that the before and the after become one piece and that's one person. But I think the notion that you never quite return to who you were back then is an important one, because if you're always trying to go back to what was, it's kind of a losing battle. Uh, sometimes uh, you're not gonna be the same physically, emotionally, cognitively. We're always changing, you know, life goes on. And um, as we add years onto our lives, we know that things change. So accepting that trauma is part of that change and incorporating the trauma into our lives is really part of the process. And the notion, the notion of bouncing forward came from a family therapist named Frimette Walsh. I've never met her, but I think the term is a very powerful term because what it does is it says that it, it basically brings with it the understanding that when you come back into your life after trauma and you regain a lot of the functioning, whether it be physical or emotional functioning, you also come back with this added value, hopefully. And this added value might be a new perspective on life, uh, a reordering of priorities, um, a new understanding. So you're coming back with that added value and that added value is part of that bouncing forward. So often when people experience trauma in their lives, they make radical shifts. They change their career trajectories. Uh, they change their family situations. 
they change what they're doing, how they act within the world. Um, so I would say that that is bouncing forward. There's a whole field of research um, called uh, post-traumatic growth, which is uh, close to this bouncing forward notion. Um, but I, we don't really talk about post-traumatic growth in the book. Um, the notion is that um, people who experience trauma will often actually grow as a result of the trauma. And um, this growth, I'm a little bit hesitant to kind of go there because I think very often uh, it can be misused. So people in uh, surrounding the uh, person who's experienced trauma, the trauma survivor might say, okay, so you had a trauma. So like pick yourself up and get on with it. And what can you learn from it? And what do you want to change as a result? And I think it really has to be a very, um, um, a very slow process. I think that notion of post-traumatic growth, sometimes it happens a year later, sometimes it happens five years later. And the, uh, come on, hurry up, find what you're going to change is the wrong approach to it. That's why I mm. think it, we got to be, we have to be really careful when we talk about post-traumatic growth. But the notion of bouncing forward, I think is more of a kind of overall uh, concept, an overarching concept, and that can be very helpful. Yeah, I guess an example of what you're talking about would be if someone loses a family member that passes away, we all get over that. If getting over that is the right term at a different process speed, you know, you have one person that might go faster than the others, but we often talk to people about it. And, you know, you kind of have to keep in mind the slowest person. You can't rush them through it. They need to go through that process at their pace. Right. Well, I think one of the things that we know, um, and one of the major messages that I try to pass on to people is that every, every person is different. There's not one recipe. There's not one formula that suits all. So if we recognize that people heal from trauma differently uh, and, and we respect their process, then, then I think that goes a long way. And if we keep in mind this notion that when you bounce back, you're not actually bouncing back. You're never going to come back exactly to yeah. where you were the day before the trauma. You probably wouldn't want to come back exactly to that day. Yeah. Um, so you're going to come back differently. Um, and that's, that's okay. And then that may be very good, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, not so much good or bad, but it, you know, that's kind of the way it is. So this book is full of people, <clears throat> excuse me, who bounce forward. So Michael, can you give us an example or two um, from the book of people who would illustrate what Naomi has just talked about? Sure. Well, we were very fortunate to meet with some incredible people uh, and they were all very pleased to be part of the book. And that was very exciting. Um, so to give you an example, you know, we met uh, an Israeli uh, uh, man by the name of Noam Gershoni, who uh, was doing his army service in the Israeli Air Force. He was in an Apache helicopter that was subject to a pretty horrific crash. Uh, he had terrible injuries and actually was presumed dead when they found his body, his co-pilot in fact was dead, um, but he wasn't and they managed to save his life. And he talked to us about that process in hospital, you know, having been, you have to be pretty good to be in the Israeli Air Force, let me tell you. And uh, suddenly to go from the realization that 
you know, he wouldn't be able to walk properly again. He would have uh, severe disabilities that he would have to cope with. Um, but what he did was over a, uh, a, I would say it's a long process, but actually it's relatively short because he's unbelievable, is mm -hmm. that he taught himself tennis and he became uh, a, a competitor in the London 2012 Olympic Games and he won Israel's first ever gold in those Paralympics. Wow. So that was an incredible uh, story for us to hear. And he mm -hmm. talks to us about the lessons he learned throughout that process. Uh, another person we met uh, by the name of Nadav Ben Yehuda. And Nadav is actually a, a, a record ice climber. And uh, he was uh, scaling Mount Everest uh, and about to reach the peak when he saw a body uh, again he thought somebody was dead but they weren't uh, it was a, a Turkish climber and he had to make a split second decision as to whether to finish that peak or to save a life but really attempt to save a life because there's no guarantee a that he could save a life or b uh, he was endangering his own life by doing so and uh, he talks to us about his thought process and then he, he also overcame incredible injury and he talks to us about that um, we meet with the former chief rabbi of Israel, Israel Meir Lau, who was a child survivor of the Holocaust. He was sent to Buchenwald uh, concentration camp together with his brother, uh, ripped from the arms of his parents as a child and lived with the promise of a place called Israel or a land called Israel pre, uh, you know, pre uh, Israel being reborn in 1948 being told that there is a place where they don't kill Jews. And that was a thought that kept him going. And he talks to us about how his incredible story of survival and what he then went on to become when he was in Israel. We speak to Ethiopian Israelis who walked through uh, the deserts of the Sudan barefoot uh, in order to get to Jerusalem, fabled Jerusalem that they dreamt of, Jerusalem of gold. Uh, we speak to people of all different backgrounds uh, athletes, people in uh, the public sphere. We speak to Natan Sharansky, who uh, was a prisoner of Zion in the Soviet Union. He was imprisoned uh, because he wanted to uh, go to Israel to learn Hebrew and support other people going to Israel as well. And he talks to us about what helped him get through uh, in the Gulag. And some of these topics are so um, they're, they're, they're unbelievable tragedy and yet you'll see when you read the book the book is tinged with humor all across I mean we're sitting across from um, Chief Rabbi Lau and you can see the child's eyes in the man who is now uh, well into his 80s uh, and he's full of humor and he's full of um, positivity and that's something that we actually found was the case with all of the people we met um, we spoke to a man called Gadi Yarkoni. He was a, a mayor uh, in the south of Israel. And he decided to run for office after a Hamas rocket um, blew up in between his legs, you know, taking his ability to walk. And yet he's really uh, made his life a life of purpose and of meaning. And that's something that we saw with so many of the people that we met. They were good humored. They were positive. They were forward looking. They don't uh, compartmentalize their tragedy. It's very real for them, but at the same time, they're able to take it uh, and make it a jumping off point by which to move forward, uh, maybe in a completely different way than they would have done otherwise, 
but certainly to achieve great things. So there's so much that's inspirational to learn from all of these people. Mm. I, I, and I'm listening to you. I, I have lots of thoughts about trauma as you're speaking, um, which, Dr. Naomi, you, you might like to help me unpack a bit here. But first of all, sure. I would say the, these people are potentially very brave telling their story and releasing their story to you, Be, I I would imagine. On the other hand, I would imagine it was also very um, affirming to them that you would want to come and sit and be in that space with them and be in that place and listen to them. So that there's a first thought. Have I got that right? You've got it exactly right. One of the interesting things that I found was for me, it was really very exciting to meet some of these people. Some of them had been my heroes for a long time, like Natan Sharansky. Um, others were just interesting people. The reason I became a psychologist is because I love to hear people's stories. So this was a great opportunity for me. I didn't have to treat them. I just, I didn't have a role. I just could listen and I love to listen um, and ask questions. You know, it was a place to also ask questions. But what was so interesting for me was how, uh, they appreciated the time. I think it wasn't, I didn't get a feeling from any one of them like, oh, this is not what I want to be doing. This is not where I want to be. This is a waste of time. I found from each one of them that, wow, this was great talking to you. That was really good. It was like in a, a time to kind of review my life story, to reflect upon it, to think about it. Because, you know, we, we did ask some very pointed questions about what their sources of resilience were, what helped them overcome. Um, you know, we, we really were listening carefully for the themes of resilience in their stories. And, and I, I think they found um, the time that they spent with us uh, affirming to them. I think it really was. I think it was an opportunity for them to, you know, it wasn't new, but that that experience of telling the story in this kind of very small environment and really going into depth. We spent, uh, you know, anywhere from an hour and a half to three, four hours with people. So we spent a long time. We took a long time with these interviews. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think it really was in a way uh, therapeutic, even though they were, we weren't doing therapy. Mm. Well, it was, and, and they... They obviously trusted you. They trusted that you you would be empathetic in the moment. They trusted that you would honour their stories yeah. um, because if they tell their story, it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to do. And in, yeah. in doing so, they really honoured us because really it's a privilege to be able to tell these stories. Yeah. Um, they, they gave us the platform to do that. And I know that uh, we've had an amazing reaction from the people who are featured in the book at the reception, there's been a, it's still early days, but there's a very, been a very warm reception to the book. And I hope that that gives them also um, a boost of positivity as well. Uh, so this is really a really life affirming. It's been a very positive journey um, for us as much as it has been for the people who are featured in the book. You know, trauma can either incapacitate or, or motivate. And one of the things that is coming through in some of these stories that you're sharing is that motivation for them going through it to to push on to something uh, ahead of them. What what would you say are some keys in not letting trauma incapacitate people but motivating them instead? 
Okay, I want to just, uh, we'll get to the keys. We'll absolutely get to the keys. But I just want to note that very often when people experience trauma, they are incapacitated for a while. And that yeah. doesn't mean they won't get to the next place of being motivated. So I think we have to honor and respect that, that sometimes, very often, people, when they experience trauma, they go into what we call a freeze kind of mode. And they are incapacitated. And then what they need in that place is a lot of support, a lot of caring, a lot of warmth, and um, a, a belief that they will come out of it. Um, because most people, most of the time, will heal from trauma without too much professional assistance, you know? Uh, we've kind of over-psychologized things and we think that, oh, somebody had something terrible happen to them, they need a psychologist. It's really not so true. Um, what they need is they need support from their environment, usually family or friends. That's probably the single most important thing that can be helpful. But I think we have to honor and respect and say, oh, I, I, I would hesitate to, to go there and say, oh, those people are just, they've fallen apart. And they've never healed from their trauma. Um, more, I would look at it saying that um, it's a process. And sometimes that uh, place is long and dark. And we actually heard about some long, dark places. What comes to mind for me is the story of Gopher. Uh, Gopher, who talked yeah, about Gopher. Yeah. He was really at the bottom of a deep, dark hole for a very long time after his accident. And, um, and uh, slowly, slowly, he was able to pull himself back up with a lot of help from mostly family members, mostly his wife, uh, also some friends. And then he went on to do amazing things, which we talk about, but uh, respecting that that can be and often is a very normal, legitimate response to experiencing a trauma, I think is really important. Mm. Having said that, I'm going to move over to Michael, who will tell you about some of the keys. He's very good at this. He's turning into a psychologist himself. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be a sir. I don't know if you. I don't know if you're going to be a sir, but I'm going to uh, give you a psychology degree shortly. I'm okay. going to be very nervous if we sit with Michael in his office again and he pulls out his notepad and pen. I'm always psychoanalyzing the two of you anyway, you know that. Uh, <laughs> believe me, you don't want a consultation from me. But I will tell you um, that what we do at the beginning of the book, before we meet anyone, is we lay out what are the keys to is resilience. And these are things that we think traits that the people that we met uh, really amplify to different degrees. You know, you can have one, you can have three, we chose three, you can have all of them uh, into different extents. But our keys to is resilience were empathy, flexibility, and meaning making. Empathy, you know, the ability to emote and feel and understand what you've just gone through, not to kind of put it to one side, but to really understand it and to, uh, to allow those feelings to flow uh, because that's part of what this, you know, the tragedy and the challenge that you face is. Uh, flexibility, you know, all of us face challenges from the small to the large and we're going down one path and suddenly there's an obstacle placed in front of us. How flexible are you? How able are you to then change direction in some way, to move around the obstacle, to understand how you can move over the obstacle? And meaning making is the final key to is resilience. 
how can you make meaning of what goes on? And we see that with uh, with the people that we met. You know, I spoke to a young Israeli Arab who was serving in Israel's army because Israel's army isn't just Jewish soldiers. It's made up of other soldiers of different backgrounds as well. And he was hit. He was serving in Lebanon uh, in the second Lebanon war, 2006. And he was hit by shrapnel from a Hezbollah rocket. Uh, and he was told by a doctor that he would never play football again, which to him was like, you know, death sentence. Um, and he vowed that he would, and he did, and he's become a really capable and amazing young man, and we speak about him in the book. Uh, make, how do you, if you have a goal, and you can then make meaning of something, if you have a, 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 something to move towards, uh, then it will help you become more resilient. And we speak about the fact that, yes, some people are born more resilient than others, but yes, resilience is also something that you can build on. And that's something that we hope that people will take from the book and they'll be able to build their own resilience as a result. So when you talk about meaning, would another word be to have hope? I think that's Israel's story. You know, we recently suffered a bereavement in the Jewish community, the global Jewish community, and that was uh, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, uh, Rabbi Lord Sachs. Yeah. He called Israel, he famously referred to Israel, and there are some beautiful broadcasts that he's done on this, and I urge people to seek them out. He referred to Israel as the home of hope, the home of hope. Our, our national anthem is called Hatikva, the hope. The Jewish story is infused by the theme of hope. Uh, we have, as you know, faced in our history terrible tragedy, and yet at the same time, we've always looked forward, we've always looked ahead, and we've always had hope. And so, yes, I think hope is incredibly important. Uh, it's something that people should have in order to help them move forward. So, of course, as we're speaking, um, the whole world is to some extent experiencing trauma <laughs> um, in one degree or another. And um, people are trying to find their way through. So I'm listening to, to what you have both shared and trying to pick up some keys that say, well, yes, we've got this. No, we haven't got that. I mean, having hope when you have an endless situation with no sign at the end of how you're going to come out of it, whether you're thinking for your family, your business, your life, or how you, how, how you maintain that hope without flexibility and creativity in the situation that you're in where you you've got to be that flexible if you're going to develop a life of hope within the trauma of covid that we're going through um and certainly the empathy i think the people that we are worst at empathizing with is ourselves oh You got it. You, you, you're really getting this. Um, when I talk about resilience, I talk about empathy, but what, and what, what I really mean is listening to yourself right? And, and listening to other people, but really start off with listening to yourself. What's going on inside? What feelings are you experiencing? What do you do with those feelings? Um, first of all, recognize them. First of all, become aware of them and not push them aside. And it's important to um, remember that if we start blocking off feelings of what we might consider the more negative feelings, whether it be fear or anxiety or sadness or uh, frust- whatever, if we block them off, then we're more likely to end up blocking off all feelings. You know, you set up a wall so you can't feel and then you 
kind of lose the ability to experience joy and happiness and satisfaction and all those lovely feelings. So it's important to acknowledge the more difficult feelings as well. It may be uncomfortable. It may not be fun, but um, it's something that needs to happen in order, I think, to move through the process. So if we think about some of the people in our book, um, they had very difficult experiences and they really suffered loss. They might've suffered the loss of limbs. We have uh, a man named Gadi Yarkoni who lost two of his legs. He, he's a bilateral amputee um, in the waning hours of one of the mini wars that we had in the South. Um, he was hit by a rocket. And when he was hit, the two people he was with were killed and he was really mortally wounded, um, but uh, he was unconscious for days and days and days. And when he woke up, he woke up without two legs. And, um, you know, that's a loss. That's a loss that you have to mourn. You have to kind of go through that mourning process in order to come out on the other side. So um, that, I think that's what we're referring to when we say empathy. It's really listening to yourself, listening to what your feelings are, being empathic, self-empathy self mm. to yourself, yeah. I would say in, in relation to what you said, Daphne, at the beginning that I don't think we realized how kind of prescient and relevant this topic would be to so mm. many people. And the reaction that we've had, one of the reasons I think for the overwhelming reaction that we've had to people to the book is because everybody is searching for how they can be more resilient in this time. Which of us has not had to be flexible and pivot in some way? I don't think I've ever heard the word pivot mentioned so much as I have in the last, you know, eight or nine months. <laughs> um, but uh, everybody is, whether it's their business or their life or how we manage our families, we've all had to be more resilient. Uh, so it's worth taking that step back and looking at ourselves and learning from others. Mm. Uh, and that for me was an amazing journey to be on. You, you talked about, um, just then you're saying about, you know, it's the personal thing. During the process of writing this book, is there someone that for each of you that impacted you personally? I'm sure each of them did on some level, but is there one that stands out that you thought, well, personally, that really challenged me and has uh, given me something to really chew on as I go forward? I mean, you're right in that there are so many of them. I think what we had to do was kind of put ourselves in their position. And, and so, you know, I'm not a record-setting ice climber. Uh, I've not been in the kind of, who had to train in Israel, by the way, which has zero ice or snow. <laughs> well, not, not zero, but not good enough for what he needed in terms of his training and only in a certain part of the country, only a certain part of the year. Um, but for me to understand the depths of injuries that he was facing and how he had undergone that and to sit and see, you know, photos of him and videos and, and really understand his, uh, his process, the process that people went through was something incredible. Um, that was uh, the person I mentioned before, Nadal Ben Yehuda. Um, I actually really enjoyed meeting Margalit Zinati. Margalit is a lady in her 90s. We have a span of ages throughout the book. And she lives in the north of Israel, in the Galilee area. Uh, and she uh, lives in a place called Pick It In. 
and she's actually the descendant of a family that has been in Israel since temple times. Now, what does that mean? When the Jewish temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, uh, Jews were kicked out and they went all around the world. That's why Jews refer to themselves as whether they're Ashkenazi or Sephardi, which kind of part of the world they ended up in. However, some never uh, left. Some were allowed to and able to remain. And so this lady, they call her the keeper of the torch because she's actually um, part of a family that generation to generation, appropriate, uh, has really given that metaphorical torch one to the other to continue uh, their family traditions and to continue that sense of peoplehood in their area and in general in the land of Israel. Um, so she had incredible things to say about her life. Uh, and so for me, somebody like that represents, she just embodies Israel. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to really explore the Israeli people in this book. It's Israel's resilience because people respond to people. And she really represents what this country is. It's toughness. It's tough, but in a good way. Um, very, it's warmness. It's kindness. Uh, and yet at the same time, those thousands of years of history embodied in one person. So I'm going to choose, my, if you make me choose one person, just for the purpose of this conversation, and not to offend any of our wonderful interviewees, I will choose the wonderful non-Nigerian uh, Margaret Zanatti. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm still thinking. I'm really thinking. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. You'll see when you it's read it. It's hard. It's hard. It's a tough question. And I didn't mean it to take away from any of the other stories because I'm sure all no, no. of them on <laughs> some level we, impacted on a personal your level. Po your point was somebody who touched my yeah. heart or somebody who, you know, I think um, Rabbi Lau's story, even though I knew his story, um, it really touched me. Um, Rabbi Lau, if say again? I was saying he teared up. Do you remember? Yeah, Rabbi Lau is a Holocaust survivor, and he was separated from his um, from his parents when he was five years old, uh, and he was in a concentration camp from age five till age eight, um, most of the time alone. Um, older people kind of took patronage over him and kind of watched over him. His brother was also in the concentration camp, but wasn't in the same place as he was. Um, and, uh, you know, his story is a remarkable story of how he really, um, he arrived on the shores of Israel. He was eight and a half years old. He'd been through this incredible incredible um, number of years in such deprivation. And, and then he went on to live an amazing life where he gave so much of himself to the community, to the Jewish community, to the Israeli community, um, and really a leader. Um, even till this day, you know, you can still hear him. He gives talks on the radio sometimes or on television and you hear him and uh, he's really inspiring. He, he mm -hmm. went on, he, he had his own family, he got married, he has many children and um, what an incredible story. And when he told us his story, he cried. And if, 
found that so interesting. So this goes back to the point about empathy, about like, you know, he allows himself to actually still after what, 70 years more, 80 years, uh, I, I can't even, it's a long time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's all, we're nearing on 80 years. Um, he still tears up as he tells his story. He can still kind of get into that feeling. And for me, that was incredible. You know, I figure, you know, he's told his story so many times. Mm. He's a book about his life. He's, he talks about it. And still it's something, I mean, it really, it really touched me. That really touched me. But there are many stories that touched me. As you're talking, there's so many questions I want to ask. And I'm thinking like prioritize, prioritize. <laughs> Let's go to another place in this trauma. So um, I think, Michael, you know, you've mentioned the Jewish history. And, and I mean, Israel has suffered trauma literally thousands upon thousands of years and the whole history of the Jewish nation is bound up with with trauma um, you live in a land where everyone who is there um, sometimes as visitors we dip into the trauma and dip out again but you live in that trauma so you have a, a community that, that's in trauma together and then Naomi when you were talking about that little boy you, you mentioned the word alone that little boy was alone. Um, am I right in reflecting back on how important it is having community, having having support, having people who understand, and not being alone? You're, you're entirely right. Um, I think if I were to pick the single most important thing uh, that helps people to heal, it's that sense of community. And the community can be family and it can be friends, and it can be a wider community. Um, but there's no doubt that the human connection is really healing. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard right now in mm. COVID-19, this physical separation. I don't like to call it social distancing because I think we don't need to socially distance. We're having this interaction now. We can, we can call our friends. We can meet with our friends. We can't meet with them physically, perhaps, but we can put the emphasis on that human connection and that human connection is so important. And when we talk about social distancing, that kind of pulls us apart. And, you know, you kind of feel like each person is in their own little house and their own little, uh, you know, little box. And really what we need to work on is reaching out and, and, taking advantage of what we do have, you know, looking at the, the amazing uh, opportunities that we have with, with um, this virtual space and how can we best use it and how can we really connect to other people, whether it be family members or friends or colleagues or clients. Hmm. So you mentioned, going back to this, um, this little boy, in a concentration camp, and you mentioned your daughter, um, Michael. How, can, is there a difference between the way children handle trauma and adults handle trauma? Do are we all very much the same, or do we grow into responding in a different way? It, it, do you see any difference? I'll, I mean, I'll give it over to Naomi to give the professional opinion, but I will tell you this that. You know, you rightly mentioned that there are things that we experience here in Israel that 
you know, in, certainly I never experienced in the UK and I know that in many countries they don't. Um, but you also can't shield the kids from it. Uh, they live it, it's their lived experience every day. And so they're exposed to more and perhaps by being exposed to more, they cope with more. Um, putting trauma aside, there's something about the Israeli culture and the way that they raise kids that was different to the way that I know that I was raised. So there is an openness, there's a warmness, uh, a warmth rather. There is an ability for um, people to, the, the kids become independent at a younger age. You know, we speak with Miri Eisen, who was a, a colonel in the IDF. And she was also the spokesperson, the international spokesperson for uh, different prime ministers. And we speak to her about that contract that uh, Israeli parents make, an official and official contract that Israeli parents make with the state of Israel that at the age of 18, as you know, uh, boys and girls need to serve in the army. There's mandatory army service here. We know why, because it's a tremendously dangerous region that we are only, you know, there by the grace of God and uh, the people who are protecting us, do we go? So that we have to do that. Um, but at the same time, it, it gives a different dynamic. And what you see with before uh, young people going to the army as children, they also have a more of a sense of uh, independence. You know, Israel is actually a very safe place. Uh, yeah. I know from my, my kids and my teens, they do go on the streets, they're safe, there's, there's community spaces, there's not a lot of crime in that sense. Um, and all of these reasons are, are reasons why I think Israeli kids uh, go into adulthood that little bit more empowered. I just want I want to press pause on that one thing you said, Michael, because Israel is a safe place. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we hear all the time, how can you go there? You'll get killed. I mean, I, I would say that Israel is one of the few places that I allowed my daughter in her teenage years to walk around the streets by herself. Mm. Um, probably Israel and Singapore were probably the two nations. So I just wanted to press pause and highlight that, although mm. it's a bit out of context. Israel yeah, is the safe super place. Important, super important. Uh, because it really is. And the things that we're talking about, the traumas that we're talking about are very specific experiences. But on the day-to-day, -day, like you say, you know, you can walk the streets here very safely. It's very open. It's very outdoors uh, uh, kind of environment, nature-filled environment. And that's an amazing thing. And uh, I was about to share a story of an engagement we had with the child in Starot, which is going to sound like I'm disagreeing with what you two are just saying, but I'm not. I completely agree. Uh, and when we were filming a documentary, Quest for Truth, we were in Starot at a playground, which is made as a bomb shelter with these, these caterpillars. They look like kids can just play on them. And uh, while we were filming this, this child, he was probably eight, nine years old, I guess, came over and said, what are you filming? So we told him the, the idea behind this documentary. And uh, we were asking him about Starot and living in that area. And he said, we said, what do you think about this playground and the bomb shelters? And, and his response was very much like, what, what do you mean? What do I think about it? Don't you all, wherever you're from, live next to playgrounds which are built as bomb shelters? And, and he said, <laughs> that, um, he, said uh, I, he said, I've not known one summer without rockets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously you're talking about the way kids go through trauma. He was normalising it, really. He was normalising it. He thought this was just everyday life for everyone in every country around the world, that his wasn't a unique situation. <laughs>
yeah. so it's an amazing thing it's an amazing thing that they go through uh, and every house in Israel, every apartment block in Israel uh, has to have some kind of secure area that people run to. That's the, you know, the threat that we live under. So living under that kind of a shadow definitely does give you something uh, because mm. nine times out of 10, you won't need it and you don't need it. Um, but you are aware that you have that there and that you do. So people are very, you know, the they, they, kids have open eyes to the challenges they face. They are very aware. Uh, because they have to be. So taking this to um, sort of a principle that I do believe in, that how parents respond is really the key to how children will respond. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. We did some research at the uh, trauma center when uh, I was on staff there, um, at looking at the kids in Stay Road, actually. And what we found, we did this, this was a longitudinal study, um, over the period of many years. Um, I don't remember the exact dates of when we started and when we ended, but it was over a period of about 10 years. And what we found is that mothers who had were more symptomatic for post-trauma and for anxiety um, had children that were much more anxious and much more high-strung. And, you know, it's a little bit difficult to diagnose trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder in young children but what we found is that their kids were much more reactive, much more, um, had much more difficulty focusing. So there is no question, the single most important factor for kids is the adults in their environment. And actually that directed a lot of the work that I have done in focusing on teachers and caretakers, because really what we wanted to do was get to the kids, but rather than working child by child, um, we thought that the most effective way to work would be to train the adults in the child's environment. And it's not so easy to reach parents. Parents are busy. They're working. When they're finished working, they come home and they're with their families. But reaching uh, adults in their professional worlds, doing in-services with teachers, with caretakers, um, teaching them about trauma and resilience building was probably, we felt, the most effective way to impact on kids. And one of the studies that I was involved with looked at the effectiveness. So there was always the question whether, you know, you say that, well, if you train adults, it'll impact kids. Is that really in fact true? So what we did is after the Second Lebanese War up north, we took four schools and we did a quasi-experimental study, um, which is a little bit unusual because um, people who are working in the field of trauma usually want to do the work and don't often take the time to research what they're doing because the needs are so great. But the director of our trauma center, uh, Professor Danny Brom, was very insistent that research helps to build the evidence base. And um, so we were able to get some funding to do this research. We took four schools and what we did is we put two schools on a wait list and two schools, we did the intervention with the teachers, this building resilience intervention. And what we did in all four schools is we measured the kids before and then we measured them after the intervention. We were looking specifically at the kids, not how did the training impact on teachers. We had all sorts of data on that. But we were interested in whether if the teacher got trained, would the kid end up doing better? 
And we found, not surprisingly to me, I knew this, but I had to prove it, um, not surprisingly that kids whose teachers had undergone resilience building intervention training were um, had far fewer symptoms, far fewer anxiety symptoms, far fewer post-traumatic symptoms than the parallel kids whose teachers had not yet undergone the training. What we did afterwards when we finished the study is that the waitlisted teachers then underwent the training as well. So this kind of proved for us, this really increased the evidence base in the sense that your supposition that really helping uh, you know the 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 import the importance of the adults in the child's environment and putting your resources into supporting those adults who can then support the kids they're with the kids day in day out i could see a kid once a week for an hour but the these people are with the kids day in and day out so the more self-regulated and grounded they are the more they know how to help themselves and help the kids, the better off we are. Because I, one of my, my amateur way of summing that up to parents is <laughs> the problem isn't the problem to the children. The problem is how you deal with the problem. Right. It's, mm. and, and I think as, as parents, you know, if, if we can step back and, as you say, self-regulate in that moment and find our own safe place to deal with the trauma we're yeah. not going to be dealing with our children's trauma and our grandchildren's tra uh, trauma as the years right. go by so oh there is just so much so much in what you're saying i won't say that i want the book for christmas again but i'll just i'll just mention that in passing you, this could be a very disappointing christmas for you <laughs> <laughs> so as we're coming I, I to i have a good feeling about this <laughs> <laughs> if not, I should be crying on your doorstep, Michael, when we come back. We could say you would be going through your own trauma and that you should read the book to figure out how you get through it. Yeah. <laughs> so as we're drawing to a conclusion, um, first of all, I just want to honour people who are listening to this, who are living through in their own nations, very oppressive, very traumatic. Um, they're in traumatic uh I can't think of what the word, the nation, but they're living in Iran, they're living in places like that where where their lives are full of trauma. And in a different way, um, I suppose they're experiencing what you do in Israel. It's a different sort of a different sort of trauma. And uh, we in places like America uh, is I've really got confused, like the UK. Now we're suddenly faced with COVID and we're trying to work out how to deal with it. So given that most of the people listening will be saying yeah they'll be saying i need to read this book and they'll also be saying yeah i can identify this in myself can you give us both of you some of the things you say these are the keys to overcoming in this situation these are the keys that will help you to have resilience and to bounce forward from this situation Jamie, you want to start? No, go ahead. You start, Michael. Go ahead. Okay, so I I very much want to join you in your sentiments. Um, I'm very aware, and I have people reach out to me all the time, uh, people who are, uh, you know, unable to uh, speak freely, practice their faith freely, many different challenges. I know these are people that you keep the faith with. So that's amazing. And to those people who are watching now, I hope that you get... Um, some kind of strength and some kind of solace from this book because 
the thing that I would tell you is that although the people we meet are Israeli and they're Israelis from different backgrounds, different religions, different genders and different types, but uh, the concepts that we're talking about are completely universal. And like you say, in times like this, we realize we really are, you know, one world dealing with one challenge, although we may all have uh, additional different challenges to deal with in the national and the personal. So for me, I think uh, the idea is that you don't know when you're going to come out of it, but you will come out of it. Um, you are, you may not be able to control everything in your life and you may not be able to control everything that touches you, but you can control your own destiny in terms of what you do. You can help to control the way that you think you can motivate yourself. You can be positive and know that things will get better. Um, so I think that that really was an amazing thing we saw with all the people that we spoke to for this book. They all, had an understanding that they needed to keep positive and that things would get better. And you know what? They did. Hmm. Yeah. Well said, Michael. I can't add too much to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got two questions to finish on. At the beginning, Michael alluded to why he asked you to get involved. And as we've all been listening, it's obvious why he would want you to co-author this book. What was it that convinced you that you should write this book with Michael? Was it his charming smile that we're looking at now? I was just going to say it was his charming <laughs> smile, 100%. <laughs> Michael called me a couple of years back, and it really wasn't a couple of years back. I, I left uh, my full-time job at the Trauma Center in 2014, and I've been uh, doing uh, consulting and uh freelancing ever since, um, sometimes busier and sometimes less busy. Um, and he caught me at a time where I had some time and I thought, oh, this is a, this is a really great idea. Yeah, this will be fun. And Michael has amazing contacts. He knows everybody in Israel. So he really got us, he opened the door to so many people that, you know, I don't think that I don't know. I would have had to work very hard. I don't know that I would have gotten to them. So I thought, well, gee, this sounds interesting. So um, that's how he got me involved. I said, yeah, great idea. And I love to write. This is not the first book that I've written. Uh, I've written two previous books. One of them actually came out not so long ago. The first book I wrote, I wrote about my personal journey with breast cancer, combining both the personal and the professional aspects. I called it uh, something like, what did I call the book? Life Unexpected. Life Unexpected. A Trauma Psychologist Journeys Through Breast Cancer. So that was my oh, first book. Let's press, book pause. Also... let's press pause it's on just... that and say the title of that book again, can you? Because I, I expect okay. there are many I, I, listening. Not only will I say the title, I'll show you the book. Hang on. Oh, do. Hang on. I'll say the title while she's getting the book. It's called Life Unexpected. Life, Life Unexpected. Unexpected. So... So it's called Life Unexpected, A Trauma Psychologist's Journeys Through Breast Cancer. Mm. And it's about my personal uh, journey, available on Amazon. And the second book is also a very personal book. And it's, it's very similar in, in certain ways. It combines both the personal and the professional. And it's called My Year of Kaddish. Kaddish, as you may know, is the prayer that Jewish people say when they have lost a loved one. Um, and when you lose a parent, it's traditional to say this prayer for an entire year. So I decided to say Kaddish 
um, for my mother. My mother passed away about three and a half years ago. And really what it is, is it's kind of a story, a personal memoir about that year of mourning and grief and looking at um, the process of mourning. And I think so often in our modern society, we don't leave much time or space for grief or bereavement. And um, so I wanted to write this book to share that notion with people. So I do like to write. Um, and when Michael offered me, I was kind of, I had just finished the Kaddish. Had I finished the, no, I actually wrote the Kaddish book. You hadn't finished, you hadn't finished. No, my you mother was still making alive. You're making it up again a lot of time. Right. You didn't have a lot right. of time at all. And right. uh, you didn't realize <laughs> how much time this would take. And uh, I just hope that now that we're through it and we've yeah. created it, that you are happy with the decision that you made because it's been an absolute 100%. It's been a remarkable journey and I have not, not regretted it, not even once. There were a few moments that I thought, well, gee, I don't know if this book is ever going to finish. Yes. Yeah. I had a few moments like that, but we did finish it. And uh, it's really been a, a wonderful partnership and a great pleasure to work with Michael. Well, um, you finished it at the right time. Yeah. So much at the right time. I mean, it's just incredible. I like to write too. I've written 18 books. So I, I think... No, I now think, I'm going to look him up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I really think you and I should get together and go on some adventures. I, I've been waiting for somebody oh, to take me scuba diving. I'd love to. We need you back here in Israel. Come I would back. love to. I would love to. I would love to. Where can I find your books? Are, um, are I will send, the we'll send you a link. We'll send you a link and oh, we'll send great. you a link Do too that. to the documentary that we made with Stand With Us. Um, I, I just... would love to see it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, um, would love to see that. As we finish, at the beginning, you both mentioned your websites. Again, I recommend people go check those out, find your other resources, but I don't think we mentioned where they can get this book. So, can you just say yes. where they can get the book from, Michael? <laughs> it's important, yes. So you can get the book at Amazon. Uh, it's out uh, internationally shipping. You can pre-order it now. So it's out on Amazon. Um, if you are in a region that Amazon doesn't cover, go to bookdepository.com. Uh, and if you want more information on the book or you want a whole bunch of different outlets that you can buy the book from, go to isresilience.com, isresilience.com. It's like resilience, just with I-S at the beginning. Well, I can say, I think it's the only book that's deeply impacted me before I've even got my hands on it and read a page. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I hope it lives Come up Christmas. to its promise. Come I hope Christmas, it Daphne, just you wait. You'll have it. <laughs> I'll be crying. <laughs> Naomi, Michael, thank you so much. And then, Michael, we've appreciated your friendship for a number of years. Naomi, it's been great to connect and hear more from you and hear some of your heart. Lovely to meet you. Thank yes. you so much for and taking start, the time. And start a friendship. And start a friendship. Yeah. The beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, bless. Thank Thanks you. so much for having Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.